Greetings, Progateers, and welcome to Is This Prog, an all-new podcast series from the creative minds behind Desert Island Dicks, Keep Talking, and The Revelation Station. In each episode, I'll be listening to a different album and asking the question, Is This Prog? Episode 2, Queen 2 by Queen. In the last episode, I talked about the Beatles, and I said that they were perhaps the most famous group of all time. Well, in this episode, I'll be talking about the only band that are a serious challenge to that title. It is, of course, the British rock band Queen. Queen were formed in 1970 by Freddie Mercury, Brian May and Roger Taylor. They went through several bass players before John Deacon joined the lineup in 1971 and the group was complete. Brian and Roger were playing in a band called Smile, with bassist and singer Tim Staffel, who was friends with art student Farouk, or Freddie, Bulsara. Freddie was a fan of the band and wanted to join as lead singer, but Tim was reluctant to give up the role. However, in 1970, Tim decided to leave the band to pursue a more soul-oriented sound, and Freddie stepped in, renamed the band Queen, and then decided to rename himself Freddie Mercury. They played several gigs before being spotted by producer John Anthony, who encouraged them to recruit a different bass player. John Deacon stayed with the band until his retirement in 1997. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, Queen became a huge band, having hit singles and albums, as well as touring the world to ever-increasing audiences. Freddie Mercury became one of, if not the, most iconic rock frontmen of all time, and their 1980 Greatest Hits album became one of the best-selling albums of all time, with over 25 million copies sold, and it is still the UK's best-selling album. Hardly surprising, given the number of hits it included. In 1984, Queen played an outstanding set at Live Aid, which has since gone on to be voted Best Live Performance Ever several times. But during this period, Freddie was dogged by rumours about both his sexuality and about his health, with one particularly despicable headline story capturing him at an airport, forcing him to deny he was suffering from AIDS or HIV. Sadly, we now know that he had contracted the disease, and on 24th of November 1991, he succumbed to bronchial pneumonia caused by AIDS. He left behind perhaps the greatest body of work that has ever existed in rock music, arguably he was more influential on popular culture than even John Lennon. Bohemian Rhapsody has been consistently voted best song of all time in the UK, and he has one of the most versatile and consistent voices in music. Following his death, the remaining members of Queen organised a tribute concert and released a posthumous album, Made in Heaven, after which John Deacon retired from music. In 2004, Brian May and Roger Taylor toured and recorded an album with former free singer Paul Rogers, and then later, in 2011, began touring with American vocalist Adam Lambert, with whom they are still touring. Queen's influence can be heard and seen across a diverse range of musical groups and genres, with everyone from Tom York of Radiohead to country singer Faith Hill to Lady Gaga all expressing their debt to Queen. After 18 number one albums and 18 number one singles, it's fair to say that no other band has been as successful commercially and critically, even the Beatles. 
As the title suggests, Queen 2 is the second album by Queen, released on the 8th of March 1974 and recorded between August 1973 and February 74 at Trident Studios in London. The band had spent time recording their self-titled debut album at Trident, which is located in London's Soho region. Producers Roy Thomas Baker and John Anthony had been impressed with their earlier demo tape and recommended the band to the owners of the studio. They were given free use of the facilities as long as they recorded in downtime. Roy Thomas Baker produced the album and Mike Stone engineered. The pair would work with Queen on their next five albums. That debut reached number 32 in the UK album charts and the band decided to return to Trident to record the follow-up. They recorded in between playing live dates and John Deacon also had to sit his summer exams during the same period. The iconic cover photograph was taken by Mick Rock and was influenced by a photo of Marlena Dietrich from the movie Shanghai Express. It became much more famous when used as the opening shot of the Bohemian Rhapsody video in 1974. EMI delayed the release of the album as their debut had only been issued in July 1973, just before recording completed on Queen 2. The album reached number 5 in the UK charts and number 14 in the USA, significantly better than their first record, and critically, it got mixed reviews. But the public reaction was enthusiastic and it is now regarded as one of their best, if lesser known, albums. Without the success of Queen 2, it's highly likely that the band wouldn't have continued. Queen are often lumped in with the glam rock scene, and they were never really that. Certainly their image was glam, but their music never was. Even so, this is very much a transitional album for the band, which sees them at a musical crossroads. Down one path, they could embrace a more pop-rock sound and become one of the biggest bands in the world. And down the other? Well, who knows, but it would have been less successful is my guess. Although they may well have had more critical acclaim in later years had they survived that long. Queen had potential to become a full-on prog rock band, and on this album we get to hear what that might have been like. 1974 was another good year for prog rock releases. By now the genre had settled into its groove and the supergroups had emerged. Camel released their second album, Mirage, a week before Queen 2 hit the shelves, and King Crimson would unleash their sixth album, Starless and Bible Black, before the end of the same month. March also saw notable releases from Frank Zappa, Kansas, and the debut album by Canadian outfit Rush. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Before the end of the year, Rick Wakeman would take us on a journey to the centre of the earth, Mike Oldfield visited Hergist Ridge, and Hawkwind would show us around the Hall of the Mountain Grill. We'd also get the last Genesis album to feature original singer Peter Gabriel, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and another King Crimson album, Red, which was the last 1970s release from the founders of Prog. And then some releases from Yes, Relayer, and Jethro Tull, Warchild. Queen would also release another record, Sheer Heart Attack, in November. All in all, a pretty good year for Prog, very much a thriving musical movement which would soon enough be faced with punk and disco, but in 1974, Prog reigned supreme. So before we march into battle, let's remind ourselves of my rules of Prog. Rule 1. Do the songs contain meaningful lyrics, perhaps in the form of a story? Rule 2. Do songs deviate from verse-chorus-verse structures? 
Number three, does the album contain songs which are over five minutes in length? The album opens with an instrumental procession, which serves as a prelude to the album. So does having no lyrics at all immediately disqualify it from being prog? No, of course not. There are many instrumental prog albums, Tubular Bells and The Snow Goose to name but two. What's important here is the feel of the piece. It's a scene setter, which includes part of the guitar line from the following track, Father to Son. Like many bridging pieces of music in prog albums, this tells you what to expect from the rest of the album. It's pompous and regal, exactly as you would expect a song called Procession to sound, and for that reason it fits as a prog track despite not hitting those rules I've laid out. So it's short, but perfectly formed, and segues nicely into the aforementioned Father to Son. This song we're on firmer prog ground. First and foremost, the track is 6 minutes and 14 seconds long. It's immediately fulfilling rule 3. But that's not all. It discards the usual song structure for a much more complex arrangement with a very heavy middle section. A simple pop or rock song, this is not. As the first actual song on the album, it would have been easy to have had a more fantastical story lyric to introduce the concept, but the band have chosen not to lean into that just yet, and instead we get a much more meaningful song, following the technique of the singer seemingly giving advice to a hypothetical listener. In this case, it's in the vein of Cat Stevens' similarly titled Father and Son. Of course, many non-prog songs also use this style. Hey Jude by the Beatles is probably the most obvious example. But this particular lyric is coupled with that long, proggy music in an unconventional arrangement. It's not a pop song, but it's not a straight-up bluesy rock song, which Queen were also masters of. Let's be honest, this is a prog song. Remember back in the pilot episode when I said that prog music was for listening to rather than dancing to? Hello, father to son. So what's next? It's another segue, this time into White Queen, as it began. 
five minutes long this time but here we've got our first taste of the fantasy tinged lyrics that we'll hear more of later on the album. White Queen tells a story of the eponymous character and fits into the good versus evil concept of the album. Although Brian has stated that he wrote the song about a girl he knew from his biology classes. Musically the guitars and voice blend together to create an ethereal sound in places and those lyrics capture the same imagery as procession. In many ways, it would have worked better in second place on the album. But again, some meaningful lyrics. In this case, not really telling a story, but describing a character. Almost like a painting with words. And also another song which doesn't follow the usual song structure. with Someday One Day, which is the least prog-sounding song we've had so far. The song structures are very much the standard and it's less than five minutes long. Lyrically, this is very much a straightforward song of longing, a lovely performance on vocals from Brian May in a style that he would go on to perfect on 1975's 39 from A Night at the Opera. One interesting thing about this song though is that it features three separate guitar solos, slightly bending the song structure rule. One comes before the first verse, one's after the second chorus, and then there's a final one as the song fades out, and that last one has three guitars all playing different melodies at the same time. Again, I'll be covering more instrumental music in my next episode, but it's obvious that Queen are playing around with sound as much as they are trying to write catchy songs. Strange to think that such a popular band were open to such experimentation in their early days. They really could have gone in a completely different direction, and it's in this song that we hear a blending of the two approaches. You're bound to be the loser. Yeah. 
leads us into Loser in the End, sung by Roger Taylor. Across Queen's career, Roger would sing songs that were more grounded in realistic experiences. Think of I'm in Love with My Car or Tenement Funster from A Night at the Opera and Sheer Heart Attack respectively. This song's really the counterpoint to Father to Son. Rather than giving advice down the generations, this is a son giving advice up the generations, trying to make a mother realise that although they may be ignored, their child will come back if they only let them go their own way. Meaningful lyrics box checked, even though I'm not sure I agree with the sentiment being expressed. It does have a very traditional structure and ends what was the first side of the vinyl album. To recap so far, most of these songs have elements of prog, but we've got a whole other side to go yet. Will the black side carry on in that fashion? Keep listening to find out. But this song in particular I wouldn't class as prog. It's far too straightforward rock and roll to be anything else. It's simple, but that doesn't make it a poor song. In fact, it's quite a breath of fresh air. A rock song that doesn't want to make you think too much and comes across as a bit of a respite before the band create yet another brand new genre of music. Ogre Battle is probably Queen's heaviest song, demonstrating their immense versatility and single-handedly creating thrash metal all at once. And if we're talking prog, which we are, then this is also probably their most out-and-out prog song. It not only fills two of my rules, with lyrics that tell a fantasy story of a battle between some ogres, and it doesn't really have a chorus... but it also fits many other aspects of a prog song. Musically, it begins with the end of the song played in reverse, and it also functions as the first part of an almost sidelong suite of songs that flow into each other. If the medley from Abbey Road qualifies as one long song, 
then perhaps the second side of Queen 2 does as well. It certainly flows better both thematically and musically, and together seem to tell one story of a fantasy land, ending with Seven Seas of Rye. It's on the black side of this album that we really see the alternative path for Queen, where they didn't embrace the popular side of their natures and instead went full-on rock or prog. segue into the fairy fella's master stroke, named after the painting by Richard Dad, very prog. It uses characters and phrases from Dad's accompanying poem to tell the tale of the fairy fella who's cracking something open, whilst being watched by an audience of outlandishly named fantasy characters. And what could be more prog than basing a song on the characters in a painting? Although short, the song certainly abandons the usual song structure to tell its tale of tatterdemalions and ploughboys, amongst others. They also experiment musically in this song. They use harpsichord and castanets, and there are stereo effects all over the place. This song's a close second for Queen's most proggy song. Perhaps the fact that it's less heavy and has more key changes than Ogre Battle makes it more proggy. Why not email me and let me know your opinion? But for now, let's move on to the next track, Nevermore. is another obvious song about heartbreak and the most straightforward track on the whole album, despite its heavy use of vocal harmonies. The lyrics fit into the overall story, whatever that is, and show one of the characters lamenting a lost love. It would fit very well as part of a musical. You can imagine a darkened stage with a single spotlight picking out the character as they wander around the stage singing. It's a story song, which also works out of context of the album. Even though it doesn't really follow the rules of prog, I can't deny that this song has prog all over it. 
It's part of a story in the same way that a chapter of a book is part of the whole, and it's part of this whole second side concept. With virtually no pause at all, we go from one of the shortest songs Queen recorded straight into their second longest, The March of the Black Queen. And uh, just in case you were wondering, Prophet's song from A Night at the Opera is the longest song. March of the Black Queen is an obvious precursor to Bohemian Rhapsody, with vocal harmonies and a series of key changes, not so much telling a story, but a scene in a wider narrative. Whereas we feel sympathy for the poor boy, and we experience longing for the White Queen, the Black Queen's painted as the manipulative villain of the piece, declaring at the end that she is the Queen of the Night, and ordering us to... Now do the March of the Black Queen. A mention of a Black Queen is made in King Crimson's classic In the Court of the Crimson King, where she's depicted as death, so using this imagery for a villain has precedent. What's interesting is that despite the album being split into White Side and Black Side, the only overt chess reference is in the two queens. It would have been easy, and perhaps a little cliché, to have made more of the iconography of chess. It's also interesting to note that both queens are depicted as moving. The Black Queen's marching, whereas the White Queen is said to be walking as the night grows cold. In chess, the Queen can move to any space on the board in a straight line, so perhaps that's what's being implied here. Musically, I love the fact that we go on a journey with this song in the same way as Bohemian Rhapsody. The guitar just before the key change at the end is almost identical, in fact. And just like Bo Rap, we aren't ever really told the full story. Who is the Black Queen commanding? And what is she commanding them to do? Maybe the character in Bohemian Rhapsody is the same person who says, I'll be what you make me, I'll do what you like, towards the end of this song. And we find out the aftermath of that in the later song. Characters who recur across several albums is a very prog thing to do. Just think of Peter Gabriel and his Mozo character, or Fish and his Jester then just when we think it's all over, it completely changes key and takes us into the grand finale.
Before Queen, Freddie Mercury recorded covers of I Can Hear Music and Going Back under the name Larry Lurex, both of which were Motown songs with a distinctive wall of sound production. Here, Queen attempt to do the same and create a big sound which doesn't really fit in with the rest of the album. It's a simple pop song in essence, but if you think of the album as a series of vignettes presenting characters and events from a bigger story, then it fits as a final track. Think the last song in a musical where all the various characters come together in one last scene to celebrate. I mean, despite the fact that it sounds very much like the baddies won in the last track. But for the first time on this side of the album we have a song that isn't really prog. It's less than five minutes long, has a fairly straightforward song structure, and is a simple love song lyric. By those rules, it's not a prog song, and also it would easily work as a track on its own, out of context of the album. The same can't be said for every track on this black side. So as good as it is, it most definitely isn't a prog song in and of itself. But you know, perhaps the very fact that it's such a contrast to the songs on either side of it Maybe that means it qualifies as prog. Perhaps. But if we're going to have rules, then it has to be rejected. Don't get me wrong, I love the song. But it isn't prog, I'm afraid. Sorry if that disappoints you. So we've just got one track left to go, and it's a pretty important one. It's Queen's first UK top ten single. The first hit, Seven Seas of Rye. First of all, it's less than five minutes long, so let's get that out of the way. It also follows a standard song structure, but come on, this is a prog song, isn't it? It's another fantasy song, this one set in the Kingdom of Rye, which was invented by Freddy and his sister when they were kids. It's about some sort of powerful entity arriving to take over. So after the seemingly happy end to our story, we've got one last twist. For all the ogre battles and processions, our heroes and villains are bested by some sort of naked god. Freddy was very good at creating these short fantasy stories in song, even up to their penultimate album with the track Innuendo. Even though Queen moved away from this early prog sound, for the better, I would argue, they still kept part of that influence in their music. 
I posed the scenario at the start of this review where the band embraced prog fully, and on this album, that's what we've got. There are songs that are over five minutes long, and some of the shorter tracks also segue together to make them effectively longer medleys. There are meaningful lyrics all over the place, telling fantasy stories and describing characters or events. We've also got use of old-fashioned words and phrases, which adds to the medieval flavour. Again, very much a prog trope. And finally, there are songs that break or bend the verse-chorus-verse structure. This is a prog album through and through. The band would never do another album that fits this definition so well again. They'll drop prog influences into songs, and like many prog outfits, will constantly take on new influences to their sound. But as a whole album, this is the most prog they ever get. And it's a great album. One that I can safely say is in my top Queen albums. So, to answer the question, is this prog? I can safely say yes, this is a prog album. It might not have been as influential as Abbey Road, but this is the sound of a band playing with its identity and making a decision on where to go next. It's fitting that their proggiest album also contains their first hit single. So, is this prog? My verdict, yes, absolutely. This is prog. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Join me for my next episode when I'll be listening to Zuluk by Jean-Michel Jarre. Thank you for listening to Is This Prog? from the Revelation Station. Presented, written and produced by Simon Helper. All music is copyright the respective artists. If you've enjoyed it, please consider buying or streaming. Send your album or rule suggestions, or just your thoughts on the episode, to revelationstationpodcast at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash revelationstationpodcast, or for a less long-term commitment, you can donate the price of a coffee by heading to buymeacoffee.com and searching for The Revelation Station. This has been a Revelation Station production. Oh, well, was that Mr. Monday?